Hi, I'm Daniel Wordsworth. For more than 30 years, I've experienced war zones, natural disasters, refugee camps, and sprawling slums. Now I'm going to show you a better and more optimistic world. This podcast is Finding Good. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Fitz. Welcome back. Good to be here. Please, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, I say it each time, but I'm, I'm asking you again, uh, just rate the podcast, do it on Apple, do it on Spotify, leave a review so other people can see how much you're enjoying it and then they get to discover it as well. You can also follow Daniel on the socials and his website, danielwordsworth.com, uh, has the ability for you to be able to ask questions of Daniel as well. You've seen, no doubt, what's just happened in Hawaii, in Lahana. Yeah. And you were there recently, right? Yes, I was, yeah. Well, recently I was there December 2019, just before COVID, COVID. hit us all. Yeah. Right. Well, we blocked those two years out yeah, anyway, so that's yeah. fine. Nice town, little oh, village. Oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, we, you know, Hawaii is fantastic. Lahana, though, is like, um, it's a little bit like I think what people imagine a coastal town in Hawaii is like. It's gorgeous, it's quaint, great little shops, uh, great community, and uh, I was doing surf lessons, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's bushfires all over the world now, and I guess, you know, they're, they're telling us it's going to be a, a hot summer with the, the El Nino. You know, you see them in Sicily, you see them in Greece, and, mm. and to see the destruction in a, a little village like that is is heartbreaking. Yeah, it's almost complete. I'm interested as to why the officials are on television, on CNN, et cetera, saying, don't come here. This is not a good idea. If you want to help, don't come to help. Is that the first thing you find that people want to do whenever there's a natural disaster? People have this natural instinct to go, I need to go and help. Yeah, I think it is. I know it's your natural instinct. Right, but no, it's the normal instinct. It's particularly the normal instinct with a natural disaster. And, I mean, you could argue whether a bushfire is a natural disaster, but I'm talking about as opposed to a war. Right. Yeah. So you see an outpouring of compassion. Human beings are like that. It's one of the most beautiful parts of being a human being is that we're compassionate like that. And so typically in emergencies like that, you see this sort of rush to go in. Often you, if you go to those emergencies, you'll find big piles of secondhand clothing, secondhand furniture, big piles of secondhand, what we call non-food items, like pots and pans and things like that, that people either donate or they get a truck and they you know, drive there and they drop it all off in these enormous piles. Right. Is that helpful? Generally? That specifically is not helpful, but I want to draw a distinction between the urge and the desire to help mm -hmm. with the way people think they can best utilize that desire. Okay. Yep. So bringing secondhand clothing in a big truck is not necessarily, although I understand it, people are saying, well, surely they, in their houses, they got their houses got burnt down, they've lost all their clothing. That is absolutely true. And so the I can understand completely why a person would think that. But what happens is, it's the first thing that so many people think about that you end up having tons and tons of these things and it's not coordinated in any manner and then it all rots and it's like giant rubbish heaps. And I've seen a number of those over the years, giant rubbish heaps of clothing and things like that. So I think we need to embrace the outpouring of compassion and yet we need to consider more seriously how that's best utilized. Well, I've got Oprah now, so clearly that's helping. Is I, hang on, why is Oprah allowed to go in and no one else is? So I would say one thing is I'm always very careful. I never, ever, I think that the most sacred moment that exists is the moment where, when, where one human being is suffering and where another human being meets that person at that moment of suffering and tries to help. I think that is a 
personally, I see that as the most sacred human interaction. It's a deeply loving moment that occurs. Mm -hmm. So therefore, ever calling it into question for me, you have to be a bit careful. Okay. So if Oprah is acting out of compassion and kindness, then I do nothing but embrace that. And I've met many celebrity types that are working in these environments and in almost all cases, they're there with compassion in mind. You know, Paul Walker from uh, The Fast and the yeah. Furious, uh, in the early weeks after the Haiti earthquake, Paul Walker came and volunteered in one of the refugee camps that we had and he never told anyone he was there. I don't even know if you can, if you Google Paul Walker, the Haiti earthquake, if he ever told anybody that he was there. Right. But he actually came there, spent a lot of time actually just helping, doing regular day-to-day -day things in that camp. He was a remarkable person. So you've been at the front of the uh, humanitarian effort and aid for a lot of these natural disasters. Yeah. You went to Sri Lanka, I believe, right? In the I was. I responded to the tsunami. I went yeah. to Sri Lanka. Yeah. <laughs> I went uh, – that was around Boxing Day of 2004, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I was in the first team that – that went out from the organization I was in then called Christian Children's Fund. Actually, what happened is we jumped on an airplane. I jumped on an airplane uh, to meet our team because we were already working inside Sri Lanka and our team was gearing up. But within the first 48 hours, I got on an airplane and I was flying there. When the plane landed in Colombo, in the airport, Colombo is the capital city of Sri Lanka. When I landed at the airport, the airplane's you know, coming up to pull up at the gate, right? And it stopped short of the gate. And I could see out my window there was sort of activity going on, cars with flashing lights and everything else, and the, car, and the plane was being stopped. And then I thought, what's this about? And then the door opened, the ste some steps got rolled up, a door got opened, um, somebody came in, and then there was some talking going on in the front. And then one of the flight attendants starts walking down the aisle. Now, I was on the same flight. It was... <laughs> Oh, this sounds bad, but there was the director of the head of UNICEF was there and I think she thought that, you know, she was the VIP and she was going to be escorted off. So she starts undoing her seatbelt and then the flight attendant walked past her and came to me and she said, are you Daniel Wordsworth? And I thought, I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like I've never, I've what done, am I? I've just done a 12-hour flight. Well, it was, it was like a 30-hour flight. <laughs> it was like all these things. And I'm like, why would I've never had anyone stop an aeroplane? I must be in trouble. Like that must be the flashing lights. It's like the police, but I haven't done anything. And so I hopped up, and they're like, "You better get all your stuff, right? Uh, you, you're getting off here." And so I, but I had because I, I was so I was like sleeping, so half my hair was up. I had you know those black things you put over oh, your eyes. Yeah, the blackout shades. Yeah, the black. You know, I had that like on my forehead. I had my collar half sticking up. I got things on, and I thought, "I'm well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to jail." So I go to the um, – I have a guilty conscience. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> so I go to the uh, the entrance and I open, I walk out and it's very bright and I look down and there are two film crews and somebody holding this big light and there's someone with a boom and Sanjay Gupta is there. Now Sanjay Gupta is not well known in Australia but in the US he's quite famous. He's like the chief medical correspondent of CNN. Okay. He's a very famous face. And Sanjay Gupta is at the bottom of the stairs and he's like – Daniel Wordsworth uh, has flown in from the US uh, to, you know, yeah. to take on the tsunami or whatever and I'm walking down again, hair tufted up, <laughs> thing on there, thing, and then he, I get to the bottom of the steps and I'm blinking and he's like, what's your initial plans? What do you plan on doing in the first hour upon arriving? And I'm just sort of gasping and sighing. And then he ended up spending the next three days with us uh, filming in sort of real time mm -hmm. what we were doing in response to that disaster.
So what did you? What is the first response in the in like a tsunami? What's the immediate need? So there's a multiplicity of immediate needs. Now a part of this depends on whether it's what's called rapid onset or slow onset. So what we're talking about is rapid onset, a massive bushfire, an earthquake, a tsunami, um, some dreadful thing where life is okay one day and then life is completely different and in turmoil the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas a famine for example, is more a slow onset disaster. You can see it happen. It's gradually getting worse every day. Yeah. So we're talking here about rapid onset disasters. What happened in Hawaii was a rapid onset. Nobody was expecting it. It happened very quickly. That's why so many people got caught. Uh, so in those environments, a multiplicity of things have happened. So you may have destruction of shelter. So people need a shelter or a place to go. You have a collapse typically of the health infrastructure because the hospitals and clinics are affected by the fires or the earthquakes or the conflict that's just broken out. So you've lost access to health services. The water systems that you rely on typically collapse in these environments too because either they've been burned up, they've been destroyed. In the case of the tsunami, in the areas along the coast of Sri Lanka, they were using open wells. Mm. The water went two kilometers inland with the tsunami. And so for two kilometers, all of those wells got contaminated with salt water and so they couldn't be used. Mm. And so you had an entire belt around Sri Lanka, but also Aceh, parts of India that were affected by the tsunami and Thailand were hit the same way. And so you no longer got clean water. Food is destroyed, people are hungry. So when you go to those environments, you have to look for things like where do people stay, what shelter can they get to? How do you reestablish enough health infrastructure so that people don't die or get sicker after the crisis? Mm -hmm. And how do you treat people that have got fractures or are really suffering because of the crisis? You have to get clean water going within hours, actually. Uh, So there's a lot of things that have to get done, which is why you have to have a coordinated response. And so there is a coordinated response. So agencies like World Vision join with all many other agencies around the world. And what's being created is a thing called the cluster system. So the cluster system is a way of coordinating the multiplicity of these services. So some NGOs will come, NGOs are like the name given to organizations like World Vision, will come in and say, you'll have a big gathering. And often it's a tent, and I've sat in these tents. It'll be an enormous tent, and the lead person from each agency sits in that tent. And then everybody's working with the United Nations to divvy up responsibilities. And so you have one general coordinating tent or office, and then you have a group or a cluster of different tents. So one would be water and sanitation, another one would be food, another one would be healthcare or nutrition, things like that. And then you come to that first big tent and you say, okay, we're World Vision, we're gonna work on child protection, nutrition and healthcare. And then another organization will say, we're gonna work on water. and, And then you go off, you register there, and then you go off and register in those tents. And then from then on, you coordinate, the water people all coordinate, where are you gonna go? Where are we gonna go? And we pass out where we're all going to act. And so when, when you know, you've got the people in Hawaii, the authorities in Hawaii saying, don't think coming here to help is a good idea, that's why. It's because there's already people there on the ground coordinating and it's just going to make it more difficult, plus put stress on those those resources? Yes, that's what they're saying. Sorry, uh, I've just simplified that. Yeah, no, no, it's good. <laughs> Probably um, no, you haven't oversimplified it at all. I, I, the reason why I say that's what they're saying is to say it would be legitimate to say that with that in mind. Mm-hmm. I don't entirely know what's happening there. A part of what's happening in Lahana is there are 
because a lot of people died in their homes and in their cars, they have to have their remains tested with DNA. Mm. And so if you were to come in and you can't see that yet. No, you can contaminate. So you can contaminate the source. You, so what they're doing is trying to create a, an environment where they can go about this meticulously so that everybody that was caught up in that can be identified. Mm -hmm. So they've got other things going on as well. But I think they are worried that people will come in and shoot from the hip and won't be part of the coordinating mechanism. Now, there's one very respectable, and I just say, this is one of the most remarkable organizations on earth. I have nothing but respect for them, but they're also hilarious. And that's Medicine Sans Frontier, MSF. Yeah. Yeah? They are so French. <laughs> I, I remember being, I remember, and I, again, I reiterate. Doctors Without Borders, right? It's, doctors Without Borders. Yeah. It's hard to find an organization more on mission that always does good work. However, they are hilarious. So I remember once in the Haiti on the earthquake, we were all in that tent. There was like 30 or 40 of us, all coordinating really well. And we could hear an interview going on. And the interview was a French MSF, Doctors Without Borders, who was being interviewed by some TV channel. And we were all here and here coordinating and we could hear in English the MSF person who was saying, this is all chaos. There is no coordination. No one is doing anything. We are the only ones on the ground. And all 30 or 40 of us in the tent are like, um, we're all kind of here. But MSF has a policy that they never coordinate. It's a classic. They don't they coordinate with everyone else. No, they don't. No, they do their own thing. Again, they can't help themselves. Right. But um, And they're awesome. But they don't coordinate with anybody right, else. Okay. But it is ironic when you're within earshot of the 30 or 40 organizations all, I don't know what's going <laughs> chaos here. And we're all like having cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, you, you talk about, you called it what, a sudden onset disaster. disaster. Yeah. What about something unique like 9-11? Right. You went to Grand Zero after 9-11. Yeah, I was living in uh, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia in the US on the day of 9-11 working for a humanitarian organization called Christian Children's Fund and we all watched the news and we saw what was happening and uh, we wanted to respond. So we sent a team there and I was leading the team that went up to respond to the 9-11. I think this is maybe, I think you can hear there's a sort of a pause in my voice because when you ask the question like the people in Hawaii saying don't come, it's just not as simple as it seems because sometimes, and again, I made earlier this distinction between the desire to help versus how you think you can best help. I think we need to applaud and double down on the desire to help. And 9-11 is a good example of this for me. It was a good lesson for this. Because we responded there and in a way it's a very localized disaster that affected a large number of people but it was right on the bottom of the tip of Manhattan and the uh, World Trade Center had gone down, destroyed some buildings in the surrounds. You had a lot of fire people, policemen um, killed. You had a very localized, like almost like a pinprick disaster in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And there again they were saying as a mayor, don't come here. Remember the, they said if you want to help New York – be a tourist or, you know, buy yeah. our stuff or something else, but don't come up here. Because a lot of people, they think um, World Trade Center, buildings destroyed, rubble everywhere. The best way to help would be to go there and help clear rubble. Yeah. Seems obvious. I want to help. Best way to help is clear rubble. And they're like, we're in New York, right? We've got bulldozers. We've got trucks. We know how to do all of this stuff. We don't need you to come here and help. But what they're really saying is we don't need you to come here and remove rubble. But for someone like me, I would say we had no intention 
of helping to remove rubble. Because as you said, emergencies and disasters like that have a ripple effect. There are those who are immediately impacted by the disaster, but there's always ripple impacts of that disaster. So I'll give you an example of how that worked in 9-11. What happened after 9-11 was that there was a rise of Islamophobia Mm -hmm. and a lot of Muslims began to get targeted. If you remember at that time, if you were watching the news, there were all the stories about the Sikh taxi drivers, you know, wearing the turbans and they were all being, you know, cursed and uh, I think some of them got assaulted. So there was a rise of violence against anyone that was perceived as Muslim. So when we went to respond, we knew we couldn't work and shouldn't work on removing of rubble, but we noticed when we sent a team there because what you do when you first arrive on the ground is you understand the lay of the land, you understand how things are being coordinated, you try to see if there are any gaps that you can identify where you can play your role with your expertise. In that instance, they didn't have a cluster system the city of New York managed it and they didn't want people like NGOs there. So what we would do is we just did our own gap analysis and then we began seeing in the news these um, Muslim groups being targeted and we thought we could help with that. So we reached out to a group and I think they're called the Arab American Association of New York. They were based in Brooklyn and they were in the news a lot because they would be spokespeople about this. Yeah. So the news would go to them, what, what's your reaction to the Sikh being or whatever. And so we went and visited them and we said, we would like to help you. How can we help you? And they said, well, actually we're being inundated by volunteers because what was happening is as Muslim people were trying to go out, go to school to take their kids to school or go to the grocery shopping, they were being um, threatened and terrible things were being said. And they were being approached by all these volunteers who wanted to be escorts of, um, you know, Muslim people. Right. And they were like, we're getting calls every day. It's out of control. We're not designed for any of this. We don't have a database. So what we did in that environment was bring volunteers in to answer telephone calls who spoke Arabic and other languages. We helped them set up a database to collect the names of these volunteers. And we helped them. We put teams on the ground to help them coordinate these volunteers that escorted Muslims to school, to doctor, to wherever they wanted to go about their life. And so the way we responded to 9-11 it had nothing to do with the buildings, but it had everything to do with the sort of other ripple impacts that happen to human mm. beings that live around emergencies. Right. Mm. I guess that would manifest itself in all disasters. Yeah. There's a ripple effect, right? Yeah. So you might look at a thing like Lahaina and you might say, they've lost their clothing. I'm going to do a drive in my neighborhood to get a whole bunch of T-shirts and take it. And I would say, you probably don't need to do that. Probably Gildan or some, you know, clothing supplier has already sent stuff yeah. there, right? So you'd have to do that. But what you could ask is the area that got destroyed was strong tourist area and it had a lot of restaurants. I think Mick Fleetwood had a restaurant did, there, right? Yeah. Yep. So you had a lot of restaurants there, you have hotels there, and you have a lot of people that were involved in the tourism industry who've all lost their jobs now. And a number of those may be um, Latino workers, the waiters and waitresses. So there's a whole bunch of people that have lost their jobs and were probably living paycheck to paycheck. So what? who's looking after them? Yeah, right. So you could go to Hawaii to help and never go within five miles of Lahaina because what happens is Lahaina is incredibly expensive, right? It's a really nice part yeah. of Hawaii. So all of the people that work in there work don't on other parts, don't live there. They live on other parts of the island. So you could go to other parts of the island where, you know, real sort of Hawaiian people live and then go into those communities and ask if you could help. 
Now, even before doing that, you could join Facebook groups. You could get on the web and try to find Facebook groups or connect with people and then just ask them questions. Is there anything we can do? How can we best help you? What could we do to assist you? Don't think you know the answer. So having compassion is great. Having curiosity with that compassion is absolutely essential. How can I best help? What can we do? How do we build from what's there? And I think there's always something that you can do. Sometimes you've just got to spend the first few days of your impulse doing your homework. What's the biggest outpouring of compassion you think you've seen? Biggest one by far was the tsunami. And it was a huge shock, actually. There was like before the tsunami and after. And, and what was shocking about it was, and I'm going to talk about it in financial terms because that was what was most shocking. Mm. So within about a month of the tsunami happening, it's hard for me to remember the exact numbers, but I think from general donations for the tsunami response, about $4.5 billion was raised in the first few weeks. Now, no one had ever seen that amount of money raised before. It was shocking. So, for example, the amount of money that got raised for the tsunami in 2004 is equal to the entire amount of money given to humanitarian response, so that's government and private and everything, in 2015, which was the pinnacle year of the Ebola crisis in West Mm -hmm. Africa, the Syrian refugee crisis, that entire year of humanitarian response, which was a big year, that entire amount of money got raised in two or three weeks in 2004, 10 years earlier, for one emergency. And no one has seen anything like it. At the time, everybody was panicking because it's a bit like all of the money that all of the – in Australia, for example, the amount of money given was like all of the money that everybody else was going to get for the rest of the year. So you had every other nonprofit (laughs) was in meetings going, well, there goes all of Australian philanthropy. No one's going to have any money. No one's going to have any money. You know, all of their money that they give to help causes, they all just gave it to the tsunami. And so everybody was doing these uh, budget exercises where they were like, we need to cut back. Uh, We're not going to hit our goals. Uh, What are we going to do about other services that are being offered around the country? And you know what was amazing was because I I was there when all this happened and I was in an organization that did all that planning. Like we've raised all the money we're going to raise this year for this one emergency. How are we going to fund everything else? I sat in that room. At the end of the year... We did our budget review and there was no impact at all. Is that right? And then I looked more widely. I went and talked to other NGOs, no impact. Then I asked domestic charities, no impact. And in fact, someone did a piece of research on this. The entire amount of money given to Tsunami had no impact at all on any other form of giving for the rest of the year. So it's quite reasonable to assume that the the people that were giving money were non-traditional donators. And the same. But yes, a whole new groups. People who have never donated money before went, like, why do you think the why, the, the outpouring of compassion? Was it because it was so relatable? Right, like- so good, good. That's a good question. I sat in, the, at the end of that year, I actually sat in a whole bunch of rooms. I went on a journey for 10 years after that. Because imagine if your job is to find water and you're used to going to the same dam every year. It's always pretty much, in the economics they call it, it's inelastic. Basically, the same amount of money gets donated every year to international causes. So it's like a dam. Mm -hmm. And imagine one day that you discover there's a bursting up spring and the greatest torrent of water ever before witnessed pours out. 
It's like an entire ocean appears and then it goes away in one month. Yeah. The most obvious question you would ask is, where did all where? that come from? Yeah. Because it didn't affect the, because again, it didn't affect the little lake. That's the point. The lake stayed the same. Yeah. There's, and so I started asking everybody in the organization I was in, everywhere I could go, I would say, anybody know where that giant ocean is? <laughs> and you know what shocked me? Nobody was even curious about it. Nobody said, I know. There's a giant secret ocean somewhere out here. <laughs> and we saw it burst up and it's gone away. As so I was 10 years going, where is this giant? I'm like a prospector. Where is this reservoir of compassion? This enormous reservoir of compassion. And everybody said, a bit like you were saying, they said, that's called the CNN effect. The CNN effect, meaning right. if a big emergency happens and it gets on the news, if Sanjay Gupta or Oprah yeah. in Hawaii... If, if they make a big deal of it, people give, and if they don't, um, no one gives. But I've seen other things. We gave an example of Somalia. You've seen other times where Oprah tries to raise money. It doesn't work. So it's not just that. And there's many disasters that CNN covers and no one does that. It's so relatable, though. It was so relatable. Like you're looking at families on holidays. You're looking at families just living their lives. It comes in, it goes out, and everything changed mm. in an instant. Is, is that why do you think it touched so many people in so many countries because Sri Lanka, Banda Aceh, like all those countries that were impacted by that have a huge tourism? Is that part of it? Nobody exactly knows why it is. Right. Now people will say things like it's the tourist area. Sure. So an example for Australia is a lot of Australians knew uh, Thailand, for example, so they were very familiar with that. They could resonate with them. I don't think any of that really fully explains it. So I just look at it the other way. The way I look at it is to say humans are, are willing to be compassionate in ways that are unprecedented. It's got to somehow touch them. So it may be that it seems urgent or it may be that they know the beach or it may be that they, whatever reason, but it's that we, I think we sometimes imagine human beings and we say in, in my, we would say they have a little pocket in their shirt. That's their compassion pocket. And they're willing to give a little bit of that out. And people will say, oh, everybody's always asking us and I've only got some. And then you're like, they take a little bit of from the little, they have a little compassion pocket that they just eke out. But actually I think there's a giant compassion pocket. I think you've just got to, Find things. This is in the end my conclusion after 10 years of looking was it's all about meaning. That there's a way that we see ourselves in the world. There's a way that we want to be seen in the world, the way we want our kids to be seen. There's, and there's a way that we want to say, I'm the kind of person that does this. And I think when something has captures the imagination of the world and people say, we talked in another episode about the shame element that people are afraid if I'm the person giving and that gift doesn't go anywhere, everyone will essentially look at me and just say, you poor fool, gullible fool. And yet when you see an entire society respond, the fear of shame goes away because you're all doing it. Yeah. So you're no longer in the shame space. Instead, you're just in the I'm allowed to be compassionate space with no fear of, you know, comeback. Yeah. And the moment people are like, I'm in the allowed to be compassionate space. Let's join in. It's going to be fun. Let's all do it. And you see the real person. So I think things like the tsunami just reveal what it looks like 
when all the shame and the fear and the what is taken away and what human beings look like when they can just as a community do something good in the world. And it's enormous, much bigger than all the current budgets in the little pocket. And so we're just trying to find ways to make it meaningful, to make it trustworthy, to make it in a way that people don't have to worry about shame, things like that. Well, we certainly hope that the people of Lahana and uh, the Hawaiian Islands get what they need. I'm sure there's people on the ground doing amazing jobs and you've given anyone listening that wants to contribute or help out a couple of great tips on how they can be a part of that Mm -hmm. and for future instances. Yeah, I would just say this in closing. Never, ever be ashamed of your compassion and never let anyone shame you for it. Whether you're a celebrity or just an everyday person, being compassionate, being loving is the best thing to be. It's the best thing to be. Is the world going to be any worse if we're more loving? No, it's not going to be any worse. It's going to be a thousand times better. So never feel shame and never allow anyone to make you feel shame. But at the same time, be curious. Listen, be open. Always try to connect and join and share your compassion with other people. And then we all do it together and we bring the intelligence, the resources and the talents that we all have and we can go about doing it together in a way that's really meaningful and really impactful and makes the difference that we all want.